Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. In watching and listening to, reading about, and praying about the events of this past week, it became clear to me that we could not move through a worship service today without either changing the sermon's focus or at least saying something about it. I elected to do the second of the two because I wanted to honor the direction that we're going with camp meeting. So allow me to say just two things this morning. Number one, as disciples of Jesus Christ, There is no room among us for bigotry, for racism, for anger, for eruptions that damage other human beings. Just because the color of someone's skin differs from my own, their place of birth or national origin differs from my own, gives me no cause at any level to question their value as a human being or their equal access into the presence of God. None whatsoever. That must not even be given a toehold among us. I read to you the words of Ellen White, who wrote, No distinction on account of nationality, race, or caste is recognized by God. He is the maker of all humankind. All people are of one family by creation, and all are one through redemption. Christ came to demolish every wall of partition, to throw open every compartment of the temple courts that every soul may have free access to God. His love is so broad, so deep, so full that it penetrates everywhere. It lifts out of Satan's influence those who have been deluded by his deceptions and places them within reach of the throne of God, the throne encircled by the rainbow of promise. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. We've always known that, though we have not always lived that way. Even as children we knew, as our children today know. When they gather to sing, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. So that's the first thing. 
We must be unequivocally clear about that. The second thing I want to say. While the culture around us erupts into violence, while the conversation and the terminology is that of epithets and slur and vindictiveness, such are not the weapons of our warfare. The weapons of our warfare are first, prayer, and second, this virtue called love. All we have to do is look at our predecessors, those disciples of Jesus who have walked in his blood-stained pathway throughout the ages, and we will see that time and again, when the world was coming to pieces, his disciples have fought from the position of their knees and have fought with a weapon called love. And in so doing, they have united the church and changed the world. Those are our weapons. It is with those that we engage an increasingly fractured and frightening world. We must be utterly clear about that as well. It is as we do so that we as disciples walk in the footprints of Jesus. He becomes central. And I guess that's why I'm so drawn to these words written by Martin Luther King, Jr., writing to people like me, to pastors. Listen to what MLK wrote so long ago. It is our job as ministers to bring the church back into the center of the human race. But we can only bring the church back to the center of the human race when we bring Christ back to the center of the church. That's our call. That's our duty. We do it with love on our knees. So I would like to add my voice to that of the beautiful prayer prayed by my colleague, Pastor Miguel, a few moments ago and ask you if you would pray with me. If you're able and so choose, I invite you to kneel. Gracious God and Father of all humankind, we come to you today as disciples. We come seeking to follow in the footprints of Jesus. We come living in this body, which the New Testament tells us is made up of every tribe, every nation, every language, and every people. We come wanting to unite around the cross of Christ. Lord, we come because we pray that our church, the Christian church, the Adventist church, the Loma Linda University church, might be clear that all are equal before God. We pray that we might give voice to that prayerfully and with that undeniably powerful virtue called love. Strengthen us, encourage us to that end, is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.
Everyone who has ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a fiancé or a spouse, has used terms of endearment to speak to them, to speak of them. Because the Song of Songs does that, I was curious this week and began to click around the Internet trying to find the different terms of endearment that we people who are in love use for one another. I found quite a number of them, the ones that you would expect, the old standbys, babe and baby, pumpkin, honey bunny, bear. I found a lot of those. I found some others that weren't quite as flattering, which I will spare you having to hear. And then I got to thinking about Song of Songs and realized the, the terms of endearment that appear in the Song of, of Songs are a long way from us both by time and by culture, and we, we don't really understand them. So I got to wondering, what about other cultures? Those that we may not be quite as familiar with here, do they have terms of endearment? I discovered they did. I read, for example, that the French use the term mon petit chou, means my little cabbage. <laughs> That's a better sound in French also discovered that the French use one called my little flea. Anita has never called me her little flea. I'm quite disappointed. And then I thought about the lands where I grew up. I, one of my favorites is Cielito Lindo, or Mi Cielo, which means my pretty little heaven or my heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Out of the same lands, though, come Mi Viejo or Mi Vieja, <laughs> which means my old one. <laughs> Interesting terms. In fact, I even discovered that in Thailand, I can't pronounce it, forgive me, in Thailand, a term of endearment is my little elephant. I was actually quite relieved to find that it's used mostly by parents of their children. That helped. Husband, don't call your wife my little elephant. I even read this one. On the BBC website, a man named Kevin, who lives in Hanoi, Vietnam, wrote these words. My wife, he said, who is from Russia, calls me poopsick <laughs> and tells me that it means little bird. But to me, it sounds like a stomach illness. As <laughs> <laughs> so I found, yes, there are different cultures use different kinds of terms. We all have our ways of speaking of those whom we love. And then I found a website that talked about the most obnoxious terms of endearment. And I said, oh, yeah, there are a few of those out there. I've heard them. You've heard them. Of course, none of us have spoken them, but we've heard them. I found one poster who posted this. Here, he said, are my top three choices, my top three candidates for the most obnoxious terms of endearment. Honey bunny, number one. I don't think that's that bad. Sugar booger. Number two, if you call your beloved that, we'll pause a moment and let you slip out of the sanctuary and go home holding your head in shame. <laughs> Sugar booger. <laughs> and the third one, he said, this is the worst one of all, schmoopy poopy. <laughs> Terms of endearment that people find very obnoxious. We all use them if we've been in love. In fact, parents use them of their kids. My dad used to call me honey pie. Me, a boy, honey pie. I can remember him calling me that at my school in front of all the other boys. One of the boys turned around and said, honey pie. 
It was rough then, but now it's a treasure in my heart. Terms of endearment. You know, Song of Songs has terms of endearment, many of them. In fact, husband, tonight when you get home, you're in your bedroom with your wife, you're about to go to bed, just whisper one of these in her ear. Just say to her, sweetheart, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. I can't even say it. I can't even say it. Oh. She'll be putty in your hands after that, I'll tell you. And if that one doesn't work, then try this one. Say, your head crowns your body like Mount Carmel. <laughs> those are out of the Song of Songs, terms of endearment. Well, don't try those. In fact, somebody years ago in a journal called The Wittenberg Door did a caricature, did a sketch of a woman applying to this sketch all of the different terms of endearment from Song of Songs. In fact, the ones that Eric and Tina Medillo read about here in the Scripture, first time I've ever heard people laughing during the Scripture, by the way. <laughs> Those that they read, they're captured in this caricature. Now, we got permission to use it, so we couldn't change it. We didn't take off the small print. Don't worry about trying to read much too small. But look at the drawing. It'll appear on the screen. There she is, that beautiful woman. Hair like a flock of goats coming down from Gilead. Temples like the slice of pomegranate. Nose like the Tower of Lebanon. Neck like the Tower of David. Uh, there it is. She has all her teeth, <laughs> is what the Scripture says. Well, we look at that and we think, that is awful. That's horrible. But please understand that such would not have been the case back when the song was penned. In fact, these terms would have been very precious and very meaningful. So today, I want to go to Song of Songs, chapter 1. I want to listen in on the conversation between the man and the woman and get a sense of what it is that they're saying to each other. Now, understand, here as we read these words, we're listening in. We're eavesdropping on a very precious and passionate conversation between two people in love. We want to get a glimpse into their hearts and have a sense of what it is that they're saying to each other. We'll read, first of all, what she says. As we look into her heart by means of her words, we will notice that she is very insecure. Notice it. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 5. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tin curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. There are different ideals of beauty in every age and time and culture. You can check it on the Internet. Just different body shapes and styles are in vogue at different times, different hairstyles, different looks. For example, I grew up in a world that was very focused on getting tanned. Worked in the summer, in the sun. I knew what it was to be tanned. My mother grew up in a similar world and tells us, can you imagine what dermatologists today would say about this? tells us that she used to lie out in the summer sun in Texas sunbathing, no sunblock, 
Not only did she have no sunblock, she had a, a girl from around the neighborhood who would come and who would rub ice on her to cool her off and so that it would attract the rays of the suns and sizzle and turn her even more dark. wonder what her dermatologist, who has removed many things on her skin since, and Mom always says, oh, it was those young days. That was supposed to be beautiful. But for this woman, in the time of Solomon, such was not the case. Those who were of the upper crust had soft and creamy skin. They had time for the treatments. They had the wealth and the ability to beautify themselves. What does she say? She says, my brothers were angry at me, and they made me go outside and work in the vineyards. We don't know why they were angry. Was she being lazy at home? Was she not willing to help? Was there something else within her that caused them to lash out at her? We're not certain. But they sent her outside into the vineyards to work and understand that that would have been hard, backbreaking work. If we read over in Isaiah 5, the next book, we get a picture of what it would have been like to work in the vineyard. It would have entailed digging and clearing out all the stones and rocks and boulders. It would have meant planting the vines, pruning the vines, training them. It would have meant chasing away all the foxes and other animals and the thieves that came trying to steal the fruit that was growing. It was hard, backbreaking work that took place right in the full heat of the Mediterranean sun. And so she says, not I have been tanned by the sun. I have been scorched, she says, by the sun. My brothers were angry at me. They hated me. They sent me out here. This is what I've had to do. Now, maybe you caught that last line of verse 6 because after describing all of that, she then turns around and says, and I have had no time to care for my own vineyard. Some of you moms know what that's like. What she's actually saying, says one scholar, is I have had no time to pay attention to my own beauty, to my own looks. No time for that. This is not like Esther, who got a full year of time. Six months of one kind of beauty treatment, six months of another kind of beauty treatment, beautifying and caring for herself in order to meet up with the king. Not that at all. The woman in the song says, no time to care for my own vineyard. By the time the scalding sun has set, by the time the scorching day is over, by the time I drag myself into my place of abode, no time for manicure, pedicure, powder, baths, nothing. Well, you can understand why she might feel unlovely unlovable. This is her perception of herself. That's when she speaks. I'm interested, I'm interested to note what he says in response. I want to read three different statements that he makes in response to what she has said. Back to Song of Songs, chapter 1. This time we begin in verse 9. These are his words. I liken you, my darling." to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. 
We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Then verse 15, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And then chapter 2, verse 2, like a lily among the thorns is my darling among the young women. Is this man someone who has a way with words or what? But there's substance to what he's saying because he's not just trying pickup lines. He is speaking out of his soul and trying to communicate to her how he views her, how he sees her, how he experiences her, and his words. Wow. Makes me wish I could speak in that fashion rather than schmoopy-poopy. I want to read you a statement that one commentary made to compare how most of us would say something with how this man might have said something. So the writer of the commentary took just a plain, simple sentence in the sentence describing a woman who was attractive. Here's how he said it. A woman in a black dress with shiny beads looked pretty when she walked by. Probably a true statement, nicely said. You know she was pretty. You know she attracted some degree of attention. But then we come to Lord Byron, the poet, who says the very same thing in this way. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies. And all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. Wow. Beautiful. I hate him. <laughs> Just being able to speak in words like that that capture the essence of what he has seen. That's the man in the song of songs. He's trying to communicate to her what he sees when he looks at her. What a difference between what she herself sees. Now, I understand he uses some metaphors that take some explaining. For example, he compares her to a mare. Don't do that to your wife. Honey, you remind me of a horse. What are you talking about? Am I tromping around like a Clydesdale? Or what are you saying that for? No, 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 no. That's not what the man is saying. Commentators are agreed that he's drawing on an image, probably amazingly, from war. Because in the ancient world, horses were used especially in war. There are even some historians that record a certain battle when the Egyptian stallions, for such as what was used in war, had charged into battle, and the other side had turned loose a beautiful, noble mare. And it threw the horses into confusion, says the historian. Suddenly they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to focus. Their attention was diverted onto that mare. That's what this man is saying to this woman. He's saying to her, when you are around, everything else loses its interest. My focus is on you. And then he says, you are like a lily among the thorns. 
That's pretty self-explanatory. He says, you are more beautiful than all the other women, like a lily among the thorns to me. And then he calls her my darling. Now, that may not immediately jump out and grab us to pay attention, except notice this. If you take this book and search every page, you will never find that word, my darling, appear anywhere else in all of Scripture. But here in the song, it appears again and again and again. My darling. He's using terms of endearment, diminutives, favorite names and metaphors and images to describe to her what she is to him. Now, I can imagine that somebody might ask, why does that matter? Why spend time in church talking about that? Save that for home. Save that for the bedroom. Somewhere else, not in church. We're here to talk about important matters. The world is blowing up around us, and we're talking about terms of endearment between loving spouses. Why are we doing this? Well, to that, I would offer two answers. The first, as I've mentioned before, we're doing it because it's in Scripture. If we are to preach, to study, to follow the full counsel of God, then we have to recognize that the Bible does not only contain Daniel and Revelation and Isaiah and Luke. The Bible also contains the song. It must matter enough to God to address us about those most intimate of relationships to include an enduring love story in Scripture. That's one reason. But the second reason is this. We're doing it because words matter. Words matter. What we say to each other how we refer to each other, whether it's husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, parent and child, sibling and sibling, roommate and roommate, whoever it is, words matter. How we speak to each other matters. In fact, when you think about it, John the Evangelist could just as easily have, have sat down when he went to write his, his, his gospel and could simply have said, Jesus was God and he came to live among us. Gets the point across. We understand the message. But that's not what he said. What he said was, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I say, wow, words matter. Or even look at the New Testament letter writer, James, who says the tongue is a small organ, but it is mighty. If you can control your tongue, he says, you can control anything. Because words matter. Some of us know that because of loving ways that spouses and other loved ones speak to us, or because of denigrating ways. I think of my father. I remember my father, decades after the fact, 
telling me one day about an incident between he and his father. His father, a rough man, given to the bottle. One day in anger spoke to him and said, Bobby, when they handed out the brains, you must have been behind the door. Decades later, he remembered that. Do you know that my father, anyone who knew him well would say this, my father was a voracious reader and an absolutely dedicated learner, more than just about anybody I have ever known. Biographies, history, theology, he read continually. He learned the Spanish language as an adult and was so committed to learning it well that he came to speak it with no accent. Very unusual. I can remember in my growing up years hearing the old reel-to-reel tape recorder teaching him French, self-taught. I have wondered about my dad. Was it those words that compelled him to enter a lifelong journey of committed learning. When they handed out the brains, you must have been behind the door. Words matter. They matter in our current cultural climate. The kinds of words we speak to denigrate other people. The kind of words with which we vilify people on the other side of the aisle or on the other side of the church matter. If we learn nothing from the man in the Song of Songs, we must learn that lesson that when it comes to this other person, those words have power to change people. That's why we're talking about it in church, Because words matter, and we start with that most intimate of human relationships, husband and wife. It applies to boyfriend and girlfriend, fiancé and fiancé, and others as well. But in the song, it's these two lovebirds who are married. So I guess the question is, then, then, then what do we take home? From these terms of endearment, of affection, with which he speaks to her, And she later, in the story, in the song, will respond. Well, I have two take-home suggestions, just two. Here's the first one. See with new eyes. See with new eyes. You see, anybody else around the woman would likely have agreed with her brothers Ah, she's not worth talking to. Send her out to the field where she belongs. She's bent, she's stooped, she's tired, she's burned. Don't spend any time on her. But then came the man who saw with new eyes. And he said to her, Oh, my beloved, my darling, you're the most beautiful of women. You're like a lily among the thorns. You're the best of all. And he saw her with new eyes. Do you realize you have that power? With your spouse, the love of your life. With your spouse, the one for whom your love has grown cold. You have that power to see them with new eyes. 
to see them for who they are. That person you fell in love with so long ago. That person who, whom others might not pay attention to. See him, see her with new eyes. Charles Horton Cooley, he's one of the deans of American sociology, died decades ago. But one of his theories lingers on. It's become known as the Charles Cooley looking glass self-concept. This is what Cooley said. Cooley said, we will come to think of ourselves in the way in which we think the most important people in our lives think of us. You with me? We will come to view ourselves in the way we believe the most important people in our lives view us. It's as though we look at them and they are a mirror. And if what we see reflected back in that mirror is poor, servant, sunburned, get out to the vineyard and work, it's easy to begin to think of ourselves in those ways. If, on the other hand, we look into that mirror and what we see reflected back is the most beautiful among women, the most handsome among men, the most gracious among people, we will tend to begin to view ourselves in that fashion. So that's our first take-home suggestion. For those people in your life, for the ones that you love the most, but for the others as well, for the ones on the other side of the political aisle, on the other side of the church, in the neighborhood that anger and frustrate, frustrate you, see them with new eyes. That's the first suggestion. Second suggestion is this. Not only see with new eyes, but secondly, speak with new words. Speak with new words. As you begin to see others with new eyes, you will then be able to speak with new words. Speak in ways that build up instead of tear down. Speak in ways that promote grace and compassion and love and acceptance. Speak new words. Some people try and don't do so well at it. I want to share with you two examples. The first one is maybe the way not to do it. It's written by a woman named Marlene Bambrick from Cleveland Heights, Ohio, who wrote these words. As the music swelled during a recent wedding reception, my hopelessly romantic husband squeezed my hand, leaned in and said, you are better looking than half the women here. <sighs> He's trying, but <clears throat> that's a long ride home. <laughs> Speak with new words. Let me give you a different example. This one comes from one of our own. Lynn Heath sits right back about there and his beloved wife, Peggy. I told Lynn I was going to read this. A few years ago, we got a Christmas letter from Lynn and Peggy written by Lynn. He told in his Christmas letter about, like we all do, the different events of life and family in the past year. And then he came to the closing part, and he wrote this that I just loved. 
He said, the splendid woman to whom I belong continues to charm me into being better than I would otherwise be without her. Still, the bar is low. So I slather on the charm like sunblock on a redhead at the beach. (laughs) I love that line. Use it in your relationships. Slather on the charm like sunblock on a redhead at the beach. Use it liberally. Speak new words in new ways to the people in your life. Remember the man in the song, a favor soon to be returned by the woman later in the song of speaking and loving and gracious and upbuilding positive ways. Those two simple suggestions. See with new eyes. Speak with new words. Because in so doing, you may learn the lesson they offer us. Simply this. Loving words are the fertile soil in which passionate love grows and thrives.